Today we're continuing in our um, study of the book of Hebrews, and uh, it's the second message. And as I mentioned before, this is a, it's a message that's challenging. Um, it's a message that, uh, it's a book that, that has a lot of layers in it. Um, the Bible is a very layered book. And here we just have so many layers inside of the book of Hebrews that last week we started reflecting on. And this week we're going to fly through. As I said, we're not doing, um, we're not doing Hebrews in 58 weeks. We're going to do Hebrews in six. And so, um, and so that's, uh, that's a, a big journey. And so today we are, we're going to be processing big chunks of Hebrews today and, uh, and really excited about getting into the text with you. And really excited about what God is going to say to us because out of this message comes a very clear call for us. <clears throat> and so I'm, I'm just I'm looking forward to it and, uh, and I just anticipate that by the end of this message that God is going to be having us look at our sense of now and, uh, and what to expect of now. And, uh, and so let's... Uh, Let's just continue in. It, it's really interesting when I learned that in the first century, um, the Jewish people had really established their systems and they'd established what was going on. They really understood their story. And what, what surprised me about that, what, what surprised me about what I found out was, was I had misplaced who the hero of the Jewish faith was at that time. I had misplaced where they put all of their, like, their, their excitement and where they had put everything because growing up in a Christian home, reflecting on the Old Testament, um, for me, the hero of the Old Testament was Abraham. You know, Father Abraham and many sons. I don't know if you grew up singing that song if you grew up in the church. And I'm sorry to all you people that did because it just got stuck in your head. Um, and so, so, you know, Abraham was the hero of the faith. Abraham is the guy that he had so much faith. He left his hometown and, and, he, was, and he was going. And, and, uh, and I found out that I was wrong. Um, it's happened before. Yesterday a lot. Um, and so, so I found out I was wrong, that, that it's not Abraham. And, and then I was like, well, well, who is it? And it's not Adam. Adam wasn't really anybody's hero. Um, kind of didn't really make it far. So, so what I discovered was that um, Moses is the hero of the first century lore. The, the, and uh, that... Moses is the guy who the faith was built upon. You know, if it wasn't for Moses, then there would be no Israel. If it wasn't for Moses, there would be no Hebrew people. If, there was, if it wasn't for Moses, there wouldn't be an understanding of God the way that, that they had it. So Moses was very much the center of their understanding of what God was doing with them as a nation. It was Moses that gave them identity. It was the law and the, and, the, and the social commandments that come out of Deuteronomy, the, the way to live. Man, it was Moses. Moses is the guy right under God. Here is Moses. He's like, man, Moses is, Moses might be superior to angels. 
not quite, but you know, might be. And if you remember last week, we talked about superiority to angels, how Jesus is superior to angels. And we went through seven Old Testament texts that were interpreted differently. And, uh, and, and so Moses, Moses is really ridiculously high up there. So the text goes through that part about angels. And today, as we get into our text, we're going to see how the author addresses this, it might be called, it might be a sacred cow of Moses, the guy that you don't go against. To contradict Moses is to be a heretic. And so what does the author of Hebrews do to help us, and how does that even apply to us? It's our question today. We're going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to break it up into a couple of sections. So I'll do Hebrews 3, 1 to 6. We'll talk about it, and then we'll, we're going to finish, get this, at Hebrews 4, 6. So we're going to, we've got a bunch to plow through today, and uh, it's on your tablets at, on the, uh, today's message. And if you want to text in a question at the bottom of today's message, there's a field that you could type in a question, and I'll get it for, from you at the end of the service. Let me read the text, and then I will um, I'll move us forward. Um, the book of Hebrews is here. Therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house that is built by someone, but the, or for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify that the things that were spoken to be, uh, to testify to the things that were spoken to be later. But Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if we indeed hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. God, thank you for your word. In so many ways, I thank you that it's layered. In so many ways, I thank you that the truth is so much better than the reductionist type of mindset that we bring to it sometimes. And, and so, God, I, I thank you that, that you are revealing yourself to your people. And even thousands of years after this was written, you still reveal yourself to us today. And so, Jesus, as we dive into this, this passage in Hebrews God, I pray that you would open up our hearts, that you would challenge us so that we would not lose our boasting in our hope. And God, I pray that you would speak to each one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Excellent. So here we have Moses as the guy. If the author of Hebrews were to position this and make his point plainly, then he would simply say that Moses is a nobody compared to Jesus. But he knows his audience. The book is called The Letter to the Hebrews. So you don't talk to the Hebrew people and say, 
UPS, your leader for the past over 1,000 years, is, is not the guy. You don't do that because everybody's either going to stone you on the spot or they're just going to blank out and not listen to you, which is a problem of pastors. You know, we, we, they, they all have that problem. Like, how do I help people listen? And so you hear all these tricks and stuff. So the author of Hebrews has this trick and he's like, I know what I want to say, but I need to be able to position it right so that the people don't crucify me. And so that's, that's what he's doing here. In the passage that I just read, we see that Moses is faithful in God's house. He has to start here. He has to start by acknowledging that Moses is actually valid and legitimate. He has to start here. He's got to be, Moses is the guy. He is absolutely faithful. And so the question is, how do you show that Jesus is superior to somebody who is absolutely faithful? How do you actually make that move? And so the move that he makes is he says, Jesus, and he's been arguing this since chapter one and two, Jesus is the creator of the house. So good job, Moses. You're faithful. Excellent. Let me show you your place right here inside of a larger construct. And that's what's been happening all throughout the Bible. The Bible has not been, here is the one thing that never changes. It's actually been, here is a small thing, and here is a larger construct, and then here is a larger construct, and then here is a larger construct. And that's what's happening all throughout the Bible. That's why I say the Bible is layered. So, so what we see here is we see a larger construct that says Moses is faithful, Absolutely. You should follow that faithfulness. He is full of faith. And he lives inside the house that Jesus built. And so that's a good, it's a good technique that the author has used that's taken, that's taken an awareness of his culture, taken awareness of his target audience. When we're sharing with people that, that don't know Christ in the way that we do, we do, they don't have the same experiences that we have. When we're talking to people that are, that are not, you know, churchgoers and they don't have all the language down, it's important that we understand the context in which we're speaking so that we don't, we don't just come with, like, I heard one person in, uh, in my past, they said, uh, they said, you know, you just come with the truth and the truth liberates and the, you, just, you just hammer them with the truth. Well, this biblical passage, that's not what happened here. He came with the truth, but he didn't come hammering with truth. He came with truth, and he allowed the person to see the framework and then see a larger framework. And, and so the reader then goes, oh, I see what you did here. He, did it, he, did, he does it again. Moses is, a faithful, um, Moses is a faithful servant in the house, and that's good. So here we have in verse 5 and 6, Moses being a faithful servant. Moses is faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful in God's house as a son. And so these words here show me that, okay, first we've got the construct of his, of his faithful, but Jesus is the creator of the house. Now we've got the construct of the difference between a servant and a son. Moses is always referred to as a servant. And so Moses faithful as a servant, Jesus faithful as a son. So Jesus is superior by far. The entire point of the book of Hebrews is to show the superiority of Jesus Christ. To prove it, 
from biblical text to say Jesus is by far the superior person. And so, this is, this is how he does it. He understands his context, and he says, I need to be able to appreciate where the person is, what they believe, what they're saying, need to be able to understand the truth, and then I need to be able to superimpose the truth of God on top of that so it becomes life-changing. And so I would, I would challenge that there's a little bit of methodology going on in this that we as, as Christians, we can be very aware of as we're communicating. I mean, have you ever had a non-Christian family member? Does anybody in this room have a non-Christian family member? Because I do. And sometimes talking to a non-Christian family member, you know, you want to say things and you want to just be like, I'm going to just do this. I'm just going to say it like this. And, and the way we actually frame things matters in how we present truth so that truth actually becomes transformative and not rejected. And so that's the point that I, that's one of the points that I see coming out of here, other than the, the plain historic point that, that Moses was the hero. Um, as we move on, here's where we're going to get into something where, where God's just, oh, there's, there's some good stuff here. So I'm excited. Let's, let's move on. I'm going to start with six again, and then we're going to read, we're going to read through until verse 19. So this is a chunk, and I do believe that the reading of the word is powerful. And so that's why I read chunks. I don't just preach from one verse because God had this written. So let's read it. Here we go. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and this is a really important passage for us, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest any of you, um, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitful of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. As it said, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who had heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were able to, un to enter because of unbelief. Woo! <laughs> All right. Um, what is going on here? Because on a surface reading... You might be able to accuse God of being petty. You might be able to accuse God of being like, wow, what are you doing? What's going on here? What I want to do is, is I want to show us a little bit of, of Jewish theology because it matters for us. See, Jewish theology is built on the promise of land. 
It's built on the promise of land. Everything about Jewish theology is about God giving, we read about it this morning, Abraham land, but that wasn't realized until these these people went into captivity in Egypt and Moses brings them out with the promise of God has promised our ancestor land. Here it is. Here is the promise. This is a beautiful thing that's happening and God is the one who's initiating it. We saw all the 10 plagues that happened. We saw this miraculous freedom from exile, uh, freedom from, from, from slavery, sorry. And, and here we are, we're, we're freed. Not only are we freed, but if you remember the story, we're freed with all of the riches and all of the wealth of Israel. They gave it to us. They paid us to leave. It's only the hand of God. It's only the hand of God that does this. And so the theology is based on the promise of land. And if you read the whole book of Exodus, you move through provision and miracle and God happening after God happening after God happening, and it keeps on happening. And God keeps on doing things. And so the story that we're referring to, this rebellion moment, This rebellion moment that we're talking about is actually found in Numbers 13. Now, I'm not going to read it this time, but it's Numbers 13, 30 and 4 to 11. It's a story of spies. So Israel has done a ton of things. We've got to picture this. We've got close to a million people walking a desert, walking from Egypt, up into the center of what is now Israel. And on the way, they have overcome tribe after tribe. They have seen victory. They have seen provision. They have seen God's hand at work, all based on a promise of land. God's working. He's doing something. And so there they are. And and they're setting up for one of the biggest conquests that they're going to overcome. They're going to move forward on. Check it for a second because this one's got us shaking a little bit. Because when, when they sent out, when you read this in Numbers 30, they sent out spies. And they sent out these spies and they were, they were good. These spies, they got right in there and they're checking out the land. And Man, what they saw was better than they could have ever dreamed. What they saw was amazing. The promise of God was breathtaking. They said that the wealth of the land was beyond anything that existed anywhere else. And we know from from our ancient history, history that this land is placed right in the center of the Fertile Crescent. We know that that this is some of the most fertile land on earth. This place is beautiful. And they walk in, and they're spying it out, and there are giants. And we're coming up to the sin. See, the sin that Israel had that they did not, that, that was condemned by God, it wasn't moral failure. The sin was they looked at the giants and they did this. Oh, hell no. Nope. Nope. Not me. Nope. Not done. I'm, I'm out. 
I'm out. They looked at the obstacle. They looked at the thing that stood in between them and the fulfillment of the promise. And they experienced what I would have experienced because Remy and David and, and Devin know I don't work out too good. And so they experienced the fear. And they, they experienced that, that, that moment where they're just like, I'm going to get crushed. I'm going to get crushed here. I'm not ready for this. We don't have the technology. We don't have the ability. We can't defeat this. And they're stopped in their track. The sin that they did was not moral failure. It was absolute forgetting that God had already done what they couldn't do. God had already done it. And it's not about defeating the giants. It's about when they look back at the past year of their life. God had already done stuff that they wouldn't have been able to do on their own. And they, and, and they forgot they underestimated God's ability. And they said, we can't believe in this. We can't believe that God is actually going to take us. Do you know who actually took Israel into the promised land? The two spies who said, I remember what God can do. He's got this. The two spies who actually looked at the problem and said, I remember what God does. I remember and I know that my God can handle these giants and my God can handle this problem. Those two, God said, you're right on. You're going to go in. Everybody else, God went, after all I've done for you, I have literally done everything for you everything along the way. I have supplied your every need. I have met your every demand. I have freed you from things that you could not free yourself from. I've done everything. And, and now you don't believe me? What? You can't, you can't do that. Man, there's fear. And the fear is real, guys. Fear is a real thing. And one of the reasons we did the, the experiential discipleship piece that we did today is because as you and I start to recount the stories of the things that God has done in our life, we have to look back at it and say, God, you've done that? If you have done that, then you can do this. If you have been faithful with that, then you can walk me through that land of giants. Sometimes our church culture is afraid of our world around us. And I would say, today if you hear the voice of God, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. Do not forget what God has done. And set your heart against God and say, God, you can't overcome this. But today, look at God who's actually been faithful in your past and look at God and say, you can overcome this. You can actually make a difference in Bradford. You can. I don't care what obstacles are standing in the way. I don't care what seems to stop us. I don't care what fears are there. God is the one who actually can move us through it. And when we avoid the sin that's called out in Hebrews here, not moral sin, but the sin of forgetting there's a second story actually about this. This one's really interesting in Psalm 95. 
This, was, this is really crazy. Listen to this psalm. I'm going to read the psalm to you, and look at what happened here, and then I'm going to give you the context of the psalm. It's beautiful. O come, us, o come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For great is the Lord, and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also are his also, and the sea is his because he made it, and his hands have formed it from the dry land. Come, us, let, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as, he, as at Mirabah, as on the day in Massa, in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and, and put me to prove that they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, these are the people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my rest, they will not enter my rest. Or I, sw- I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. Okay, what's going on here? The first half is like, yay, yay, yay. The second half is great warning. Guys, there's something huge here. See, the people of Israel, they actually did defeat those giants. They actually overcame. They started doing it. They started living the promise. They started being in that moment, and they were like, yeah, this is awesome. And so some of us, in our lives, we've actually overcome some of the things that have happened. We're living the dream. Someone said that to me like yesterday. How are you doing? Oh, I'm living the dream. And, And it's true. In many ways, we are. We're living the dream. And Psalm 95 takes the exact same story and does something very different with it. Check this. This may be the one for you. Because Psalm 95 says, God has done everything. He is great. He's so wonderful. He he has overcome every situation and every problem. He's got it all. And what's the warning? The warning is of the exact same sin. Don't forget this was God. Don't you dare get complacent and think that the wealth and the joy and the privilege you have is from, is from your own hands and your own circumstances. Don't think that for one second because in doing that, you will forget that it was the hand of God. Don't think for one second that, that it's just simply because, you know, you were really good, that you, that you did all these wonderful things. No. It was God who was at work in your life. And it's God who is the one who is challenging us and saying, don't get complacent. And what a timely psalm in the height, in the height of of Israel's success. The warning goes out and says, don't forget God because that's that's the sin, the sin. That's the thing that God is going to just, he's not gonna handle that. When, when, you, when you look at everything God has done and you don't give him, you don't acknowledge and you, and you forget, then God's like, really? Really, guys? Why would God do that? See, for us today, the caution is to not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so I'm going to read this, this last bit here. We're going to get into a little bit of why, and then we're going to be done. 
I took my bookmark out. So, as we finish up the reading today, we're going to read the last bit. It's not Hebrews 11. It says, Take care, lest there be any of you um, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort everybody every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It's, it's this piece here where, where we're called to say the same temptation that faced the Israelites faces us. This isn't actually a call to resist all sins. This is a call to resist this sin and the deceitfulness of it. This sin is when I take a look at my situation and I say, I have got it figured out. This is the reality and I'm stuck in what Walter Brigham calls the eternal now. Israel was in an eternal now. Two times. Once in desperation. Here they are, giants in the land, and they're in an eternal now, saying this is the fact. This is what is up against us. Here's my eternal now. Nothing is going to change the facts. And later on, Israel was in another eternal now. This is the facts. Everything is glorious and great, and nothing is ever going to change that. And they're stuck in an eternal now. I would argue that our culture today, en masse, is stuck in an eternal now. Try picturing the world structured completely differently than it is now. Try to picture revolution. Try to picture massive change. Try to picture extreme poverty in Canada. I would never want that. But the fact that, we, that, that it's left our imagination as plausible tells me that we look at the world and say it has arrived at its eternal now. This is the way it is. It's the way it's always been and the way it will always be. And the promise of God is not yet complete. The promise of God speaks to people who live in the eternal now and says, I'm not done yet. I'm not done with what I was doing. I have more to see happen. And he calls to us in our environments, in our communities, in our contexts like this one. And he says, I'm not done yet. Don't fall to the lie that now is all you've got. It's not just now. I've got a picture for the future. I have a picture that we're working towards that is better, that is more glorious, that is more complete. Jesus wasn't, or God wasn't done with Israel when they were in their success days. And, and God isn't done with promised church, even though we're in our infancy. God's not done. And so today, if you hear his voice, the scripture verse says, don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts against it. The last verses that I want to read are chapter 4, 1 to 6. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. 
For good news came to us, justice to them, but the message they heard didn't benefit them because it was not united with faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter the rest, because he said, I swore in my wrath that they would not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the day of the foundation of the world. For he somewhere had spoken of the seventh day. In this way, he said, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in the passage, they will not enter my rest. So it remains for some to enter it. And for those who formerly received the good news, they failed to enter it because of disobedience. So here's where we are today. We're faced at a crossroads consistently in our life. And Devin, you can come on up if you don't mind. We're faced in a crossroads consistently in our life where we say, I've been presented with the good news. The good news is that God is not done that God is working to reveal himself, that God is working towards making all things right and living with us. I've been presented with the good news. And the encouragement is to say, don't fluff it off. Don't fluff it off as information. You may have been a Christian for a lot of years, and you may be very content with where you are in your spiritual walk. And you might be there, And God says to you, don't, like in in Psalm 95, don't be complacent about that. Don't be complacent because God's not done with you yet. He's still shaping you and he's still making you. He's still working through you and challenging you and growing you into the image of his son, which he sees inside of you because he put it there. So don't be complacent with that. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. But for some of us, we're totally terrified of the next step because the promise of God seems too good or seems too unreal or seems too far away, and we're terrified of it, and we say, I don't know what to do here. And to that person, God says, seriously consider where you are because because I've done so much. Look at my track record. I can carry you through. I can carry you through the hell you're going through. I can carry you through the challenge that is being put in front of you. Those giants aren't too big. And I'm going to carry you through. While we sing this last song, I just pray that, God, you would be here in this moment while we consider what you're doing, what you've done, and what you promised to take us through and take us to. In Jesus' name.